Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory Heroes, and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, the podcast where two longtime gal pals chat about women from history that you may not have heard of and drink wine while doing it. Today we're doing a special uh, in-quarantine episode, well, maybe not special, but we're doing it remotely, and so... um, Due to some technical difficulties when we recorded last night, this may be a slightly less banterific episode. Uh, if it is, I'm sorry, blame, blame me. Um, and I am Kelly. I'm Emily, and welcome to this social distancing quarantine-friendly podcast. We are, uh, so if, you, if you're not aware, there's a whole thing going on right now, COVID-19, you know, maybe you've heard of it. And uh, Minnesota, actually, we just got our shelter in place order that went into effect uh, this morning, late last night. And uh, I was going into work for a while and now I'm working from home exclusively. And Kelly and I are are trying to take this very seriously and uh, maintain our high horses so we can judge everyone else who's doing it wrong. So we are going to record remotely until this shit fucking gets resolved i don't know like what the outcome is like is it just go away do we find a a vaccine like what (laughs) however this is gonna end but because of these unprecedented uh crazy things kelly and i are breaking some rules i am actually not drinking wine today yeah i'm not drinking wine either i have uh flavored water that kind of looks like wine okay there you go oh it does look like wine yeah, yeah, it's bright, it's bright red. It kind of looks like what they say is blood in vampire movies, and you're like, that's way too clear. Blood is very thick, you guys. It's opaque. Oh, and it's too watery. Like, that shit congeals so fast. Come on. Do they even know? And I am drinking uh, some OG Cider Boys because it's what I have left over from when I had a party last month. You know, before all of this. <laughs> Do you remember... What other people's faces look like. Do you remember what it was like to have more than two people in a room together? All of the good old days. All right. Well, we've gone over what we're drinking. Um, I don't have a say their name. Kelly, do you? Yes, I do have a say their name. Um, I want to s- shout out everyone on the front lines, the nurses, the doctors, you know, the PCAs, everyone out there still working. And I mean, even the people who can't work, but, you know, the people out there making sure the people that are sick are getting treated and, you know... Everyone can live and stay safe and happy. So here's to health. Very well said. So after you started yours, I thought of a say their name, but now it feels kind of dumb, but I'm going to say it. Um, My say their name is you because you just had your birthday between our last episode and this one. And I posted about it on social media, but everyone Kelly had a birthday and now she's old like me. Yay! (laughs) Yay, we're going to get matching walkers. It's going to be great. We're going to like wear crazy stretch pants and like yell at kids. Yeah, fun colors. We're going to yell at kids. We're going to get real sassy. We're going to get real weird with it. All right. Well, my story today is Sonia Goldenhand or the the Queen Thief of Russia. Yeah, she's definitely a badass. Um What's kind of interesting about her is little little is kind of known about her life and origin and a lot of the information that people like that she provided when she went to courts a lot of people are saying is probably not true because why why would she tell the truth about herself 
She was supposedly born in 1846 or even maybe 1859 in Povoski in the Warsaw district uh, to Jewish parents, according to her. But as I said, she wasn't exactly the greatest truth teller. And so no one's really quite sure her origin story or even for sure how she got into being a criminal. She was, however, very, very pretty. All right. So she was very, very pretty, just absolutely beautiful, but not like garish is what I saw a lot. Like she's not like over the top, but she was definitely a seducer and had that like je ne sais quoi. She had like big pussy energy. Yes, Emily, the big pussy energy. And so she was really, really good at making people feel wanted and getting them to do what she wanted them to do. And because she possessed this natural gift, um, you know, definitely that's kind of what helped her become, you know, the queen of the St. Peter's, you know, criminal world, St. Petersburg criminal world. Sorry. So Sonia was known to kind of think of everything. She didn't like small or impromptu cons. She tried to prepare for absolutely everything she could, as you'll see when I get into some of her bigger crimes. Um, She was fluent in five languages and had mastered the manners of various social classes. So she could, you know, act posh or she could act like a street urchin and it didn't really matter. She was also either good at obtaining false documents or creating her own. No one's really sure. And so, yeah, she was kind of viewed as the aristocrat of the criminal world and very much so actually liked that her nickname was the Golden Hand and she viewed it kind of as like her title in, in, in you know, like as you'd say, like the Baroness, she viewed the Golden Hand as her court title, so to say. And, you know, in being nobility, she, she would sleep around with the other nobility of the underworld and uh, it's said that a lot of famous thieves and swindlers in St. Petersburg were her lovers. So because she was so good at knowing how people tick and, you know, being beautiful and being able to seduce people, she was really good at charming anyone she needed to. Known, you know, she was known to charm policemen, investigators, wardens, soldiers, counts, princes, generals, kind of whatever she needed. And she would, she was very good at, you know, seeming to actually be in love and you know, be passionate, and it wasn't uncommon for these men to risk everything for her, and, you know, she would just kind of steal stuff from them and waltz away. <laughs> um, she also preferred to act alone, um, though it was said she did go on to create one of the largest gangs in St. Petersburg, and then also became a member of the criminal club called the Red Jacks, which was located in Moscow, but there wasn't really a lot of information about either of those Because like I said, most of her crimes were committed on her own. So I'm going to go into some of her more famous cases. The first one just kind of more being like a general what she enjoyed doing. They called it a good morning job or a guten morgen job. And it was probably one of her most common robbery routines. She would dress up in expensive clothing like her, her best garments and start behaving, you know, like nobility and check into an expensive hotel. And then she would just kind of wander around the hotel, you know, because no one's going to be like, ma'am, you're not supposed to be here if she looks the part. Plus, she was pretty, so I'm sure that helped. So, first of all, I love that. Um, I've always kind of wondered, like, if you just walk into a hotel, is anyone really going to stop you? Like, how good at they are knowing who is staying at that particular time, you know? But, you know, when she was 
wandering around. She wasn't just, you know, doing whatever. She was studying its layouts. And she knew that these these nobility would party the night away and then sleep in the next day. And so what she would do is early in the morning, you know, when they're sleeping off their hangover, she would, you know, dress in soft clothes and soft shoes and break into these rooms. She would look for open doors or or use her lock picks. She would quickly enter the room and search through their jackets or, you know, valuables. If the guest woke up, well, she would put on an act for them and, you know, she would assess if how they reacted to having such a pretty woman in their room. If it was an older guy or a woman, she would just kind of, you know, act embarrassed and, you know, be like, I'm, I'm sorry, I made a mistake and leave. You know, she would leave taking whatever she already had in her pockets with her. Um, if the guest seemed to be interested in her, particularly, you know, if it was like a young man, she would still say she entered by mistake, obviously, but then it would be more of like, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I, I don't know how I got here, but it would be like, you know, the implied like, but I can stay if you want to, you know, and then... To quote uh, one of the authors in I read, it, they said, After the labor of love was completed, the guest fell asleep exhausted. Sonia cold-bloodedly completed the theft and left the room. I just like that instead of saying, oh, yeah, they had sex. It was after the labor of love had been completed. Because it's like, I doubt, you know, it was love. You know, they're not making love. They're fucking. She fucked them into a coma so she could steal their shit. Are you kidding me? And then on the way out, if she got stopped by, like, the doorman or anything, she would just, you know, either bribe him or act like an insulted noblewoman. And, of course, I'm sure the, the guy didn't want to get in trouble, so he would, you know, just let her go, which is good for her anyways. That's so sinister because some of the, like, most infamous criminals and, like, murderers and stuff, you always hear about them taking advantage of the social rules that we've all kind of come to know. So, like... um, Ted Bundy, for example, he would pretend to be injured so people didn't think he was a threat. And he'd be like, oh, can you help me? Well, if you don't help a dude on crutches, you're the asshole. Like, you can't say no. You're put in the position where you socially can't say no. And so if a a wealthy looking woman accuses a working class doorman of, like, harassing her... Oh, shit, I'm so sorry. My bad. Like, I, I... And they back down so quick. And that's why be rude and be alive, like stay alive, stay weird, stay alive. So probably one of her most famous cases and probably like my favorite one is known as uh, is, is a jewelry robbery. And it said that during May of 1883, a beautiful and well-dressed young lady entered Carl von Mel's jewelry store and introduced herself as the wealth of, wife of a well-known psychiatrist in the area. She looked around and kind of settled on expensive jewelry. She had expensive tastes and selected a wide variety of items that ended up totaling about 30,000 rubles. She asked for the jewelry to be hand-delivered by the owner, Carl, to her her home address where this psychiatrist husband of her, who was obviously rich, would pay for the items. At the appointed time, the jeweler with the collection of diamonds showed up at the house and the beautiful, you know, the wife met him, took the jewelry, explaining, oh, she's getting ready for the night and she wished to wear them. But then she led him to the psychiatrist's office and asked him to wait. When the doctor arrived and asked the jeweler what he wanted, the jeweler, you know, went on to compliment his wife and the sophisticated taste she had. And then, of course, like, asked him for the money. Oh, my God. And, of course, you know, I'm sure the guy, the psychiatrist was like, uh, no. So 
After that discussion, um, the psychiatrist called medical orderlies to take him away to a mental hospital. Oh, no! That's awful! Yeah, I know. It's insane. Yeah, no, I asked why would that happen, too. Um, like, was he in on it? No, And no, it, he wasn't in on it. It turns out that Sonia had previously, just like an hour or two before, come into the psychiatrist claiming to be Carl von Mel, the jewelry seller's wife, and she told him... The psychiatrist that her husband had had like a mental breakdown and was demanding money from people to pay for jewelry that he'd never sold them. And so she was like, you know, I'll I'll send him to you. And if he keeps doing that, you know, like, please treat him. So she she paid for the psychologist's treatment or she paid for the treatment from the psychologist. And then, yeah, like got him committed, basically. Eventually, you know, it was figured out what they did. But of course, by that time, she was long gone. Oh, my. She thought of everything. She thought of everything. She was so ready for that. (laughs) Oh, my God. She, like, gaslit someone to get away with crime. All right. So the next one is the bank bank robbery. But no, a banker robbery. This happened in 1884 at a cafe in Odessa. Rather, that's where it started. It is where Mr. Dogmarov, a banker, met a beautiful lady who identified herself as Mrs. Sophia Sandonata. They had a wonderful conversation, and finding out that he was a banker, she asked him to change out a thousand rubles bill for her. So as they were doing that, he found out that she was leaving Moscow that evening, or sorry, leaving for Moscow from Odessa that evening by train. And what a quinky-dink. He was doing the same. Oh, what a quinky-dink. So he suggested that they share, you know, a cabin and accompany her so that she was not a lady traveling alone. In the sleeping compartment they were sharing, they politely conversed and ate some chocolate together. And then in the morning, after having a good sleep, you know. Can we talk about how they, instead of saying fucked, they said polite conversation? That's how I'm going to describe my sex life from now on. Yeah, that, that'll be our, our thing now. Polite conversation and chocolates. Yeah, like, oh, how, how, how was your date last night? Well, you know, we shared some polite conversation chocolate candies, so you know how it is. <laughs> that's gonna be, that's gonna be on my non-existent Tinder profile. Yeah, it's, you know, it's all, it's a good sleep after some polite conversation. But yes, upon waking, the banker found neither his money, uh, Neither the woman nor his money, which totaled about 43,000 rubles. So, yeah. Go big or go home, girl. My question was, because I'm assuming he woke up and was still on the train. So, my question is, is, like, was she also just, like, somewhere else on the train? And how? why did he not, like, try and find her? Like, because I doubt she, like, jumped off the train. But, you know, whatever. Here's another good one. Another jewelry store robbery. So, this was 1885. And the manager of jewelry store T, I don't know... If it was just called Jewelry Store T or what? That's where Mr. T got all of his jewelry. That was his jewelry store. Yeah. Mr. T bought his jewelry. Yeah. Um, recommended a collection of various diamonds, about 22,300 rubles worth to this baroness, Sophia Boxhuvedin, that came into his store. She agreed. You know, he put them away, nicely packed them, and then this baroness was like, oh no, I forgot my wallet, you know, it's at home in my other hoop skirt, you know, and he was like, well, you know, 
you know, what do they do? And so she took the jewelry and left behind um, her relatives that were with her, which was uh, her fa- a gray-haired older man that she said was her father and a little baby girl that uh, with a governess. So she took the jewelry, left her family. She left people as collateral? God, I love her. She promised she would return very shortly to pay... Uh, and when she didn't show up two hours later, the store owner um, called the police and reported the robbery, who then came and found out that these relatives had been hired by an advertisement published in the newspaper. What does that newspaper ad look like? Wanted fake family for the day, just trying to live the Russian dream. <laughs> I can't have a family of my own, and I just want to know what it's like for one day. Go shopping with me. I'll buy you ice cream. Little girl and governess required. Yeah. So not only was Sonia really good at doing these crimes, but she was also pretty good at escaping. One of the first times she got caught, um, not only did all the Russian newspapers report about this, because I don't know, apparently, like, it it goes on to tell that she was really popular, and I'll talk about that more. Um, But I'm sure it was just a big deal, like, oh, you know, she's been pulling all these crimes and she finally got caught, you know. So... She was in Smolensk prison for several days, and during this time, she would she just absolutely charmed the people that were looking over her. She would read them verses in different languages and tell stories about life in different countries. Even though everything I said I found only ever said she lived in Russia, so you know, lies upon lies. Um, during this time, one of the wardens fell in love with her um, to the point where he arranged for her to escape so that they could run away together. So they they that happened. Uh, however, he was caught, judged, and punished. But she just can you know she wasn't and just went on her merry way basically and continued to do what she do. I bet she's just got like a, an energy about her. Like she walks in and you're like, my dick is yours. Like you can do whatever you want with it. I don't know. <laughs> Big pussy energy. Is yeah. I just think that's crazy to, like, throw away your whole life for this girl. But, yeah, like you said, big pussy energy. So, as I said earlier, the public was very excited over Sonia's tricks, and they they absolutely fell in love with her. And her, her popularity, like, skyrocketed the more she did. And in, which I think is funny, because it's, like, there's no television, there's no social media, but people began to recognize her on the street. Um, at first, this actually, like, helped her a lot because the crowds would kind of push aside the police, helping her, like, making it so she could get away. But, you know, the more this became a thing, it began to interfere with her business because, you know, it's it's hard to rob someone when, you know, all these people are there because they're going to know something's up. Or the I'm sure the shop owners just started being able to recognize her as well. It is also said that over the years, as she as she aged, she got um, more sentimental. Some of the stories of her sentimentality, one one is um, she returned 5,000 rubles that she had ro- stole from a widow when she found out that she was a widow and had two daughters. Oh, empowered women empower women even when they're criminals. Another one was in one of her good morning schemes when she broke into a hotel room She to a young man sleeping um, he had a gun near him and a letter to his mother that said, you know, I'm sorry that I spent 300 rubles that you gave me for or my sister's treatment. And so Sonia took out of her purse 500 rubles, put it in the young man's hand and left. It is also said that she had two daughters that she spent um, 
a lot of money on, you know, to probably keep them from doing what she did, but it's hard to know. I know I'll talk about it in a little bit, but she was definitely married a bunch, but you know, so having daughters is definitely up there. There's a ton of stories about her um with ver- varying, you know, degrees of verifiability. So I'll just touch on a few other ones that I kind of saw and liked. Um it was said that she uh, had a small monkey that would help her in her business. So basically while she was talking to the shopkeeper, uh, the monkey would go and swallow precious stones. And then um, basically Sonia or someone else, I don't know, would give the monkey an enema to get the stones back. So I'm sure that monkey didn't hate her or did hate her. So, okay. I feel like we've crossed a line here from like, wow, this is crazy to... What the actual fuck? Is she just Russian female Aladdin, but like really hardcore? Because she's basically a cartoon character right now. I want this Disney movie. Disney, get on this shit. I know we can't go see movies right now, but you've got plenty of time to work on this and then we can go see it. (laughs) First movie after quarantine is going to be Sonya the Thief. And a monkey enema giving badass bitch with the golden hand. It's a long title, but it's fine. We can workshop it. I know. I'm, I'm surprised, like, it managed to stay trained. As I said, she was also married an excessive number of times. Um, it ranges from about three. And then the upper end, which was reported in America, who thought that she was actually Russian nobility, to be as high as 16. Yeah. She also um, had either really long hollowed out fingernails or prosthetic fingernails that she would slip like gems inside of. What the fuck? I want those. I want them to like, I don't know, keep my my change or bobby pins or I don't even know what the fuck I would put into fingernail size compartments, but that just seems so cool to have. Like, oh, you need a mint? Let me just open up my fingernail here. I've got you. And then she would also carry a dress bag large enough for an entire roll of fabric to fit inside so she could just like walk in and steal stuff. Um, Another one is that when after a lawyer defended her in court, she went on to give him a gift of an an expensive watch for, you know, helping her. Uh, And it turned out, you know, it was a watch that she had stolen from him earlier. So... You know, here's thank you. Here's a watch. Oh yeah, it's yours. Um, unfortunately for her, this promiscuity and you know love of men would actually be her downfall because she she fell in love. She fell in love with someone known as Volgia Kachubchik, also known as Wolf Bromberg, who was also a thief who began at the age of eight. Um, and so Wolf Bromberg was kind of his his thief name just like she was the golden hand um but the problem was is that she would go out and earn both sexy and unsexy finger quotes money and then he would waste it all away gambling and playing cards so that would force her to do riskier higher thefts every day to kind of basically pay for his habit but you know she was in love with him so whatever and because she was doing this every day she started making a lot of errors Well, it wasn't on her terms anymore. It was based on his bullshit. To the point where she was finally caught. I mean, he was caught too, but he ended up just going six months of hard labor and then became a well-off owner in the south of Russia. So, like, fuck him. 
fuck that dude. It was his fault. Whereas she was sent to um, Sock Holland, which is like a prison labor island. So she was sent to do penal servitude, which is hard labor on Sock Holland. And as she was being brought from the jail or the prison to the ship to take her to this island, like all of the city of Odessa came out and cheered her on just like she was like a hero going off to war or something. Like it was insane. So while on Sock Holland, she attempted to escape three times because, you know, why not? The first time, the guards just kind of simply brought her back and was like, come on. The second time, um, they chained her in shackles. Uh, and she was one of the, she was, it says, the first chained woman in the history of penal servitude, so of hard labor. I don't know if they mean specifically for this prison or in general, but that's just what my the source I was on said. The third attempt, however either performed alone or with the murderer Bogdanov, who was her lover at the time, because of course. I'm going to go with alone because that kind of seemed like her style. Um, they, they broke her. They sadistically whipped her and then left her in manacles for 32 months, which kind of like withered her arms and left her in constant pain. She would go on to die on this island, probably partially from that. Um, however, before she died, uh, Anton Chekhov met with her, who's a famous author. Yeah, he's the dude with the gun, right? Chekhov's gun? No. Chekhov's gun. <laughs> I I don't know. I'm making I only know one reference to Chekhov and it involves a gun and theater. So I'm assuming there's literally only one Chekhov in the world, and this is that dude. <laughs> exactly. There's only one Chekhov. History History headcanon, even though it's a guy. History headcanon. So he wrote that she was a small, skinny, already graying woman with a crumpled old womanish face, even though they estimate her age at this time to only be around her mid 40s. He also said, quote, looking at her, it is impossible to believe that not long ago she was beautiful to such a degree that she charmed her prison guards as she did in Smolensk, for example, where the overseer helped her escape and himself run, ran away with her, end quote. So like, clearly she's not as good looking as she was. Well, yeah, Russian prisons are stressful places to be, guy. So, yeah, it's insane. At the point that he visited her, she was in solitary confinement. And then, yeah, she ended up dying on this island, which is sad. Um, But she was also linked to a number of other crimes. Or not linked. They weren't sure if it was her. Um, These included the murder of a rich shopkeeper, the theft of 56,000 rubles from a Jewish merchant, and a vodka smuggling ring inside the prison, which was totally her herstory headcanon. I thought you were going to say she started her own vodka brand. It's called Svedka. (laughs) I would buy... We would rebrand into a vodka podcast. (laughs) Yes, we'll be a vodka podcast now. She was the series. She was the subject of a series of novels, silent films, and two TV shows. And to add to her era of mystery, there are reports that her body disappeared after her death. There are some reports that she's still buried um, on the prison island, but there are other reports that her body disappeared and was buried by her confidants in an unmarked grave in Moscow, a grave that now has a headless, armless statue dra- draped in cloth. That reads Bolstein, um, and it's covered in inscriptions, and it's um, a grave that thieves come to pay tribute to and basically, you know, pray to her 
to help them, you know, either become good thieves or what will you? Like, she's she's like their god. Oh, my God. She's the patron saint of thievery. That is amazing. I also love the idea that it's headless and armless and herstory headcanon. They made the statue in her likeness, but it was way too hot. So they had to, like, remove the head and arms to lower its sexual appeal so people would stop fucking the statue. Yeah. But yeah, that's that was Sonia the Golden Hand, you know, not not kind of my normal story, but something's still good, I think. That was fantastic. And I loved every second of it until the end. And then we brought it back. So. All right. Well, I uh, so I did this story like a, a week ago in one night. And uh, normally I spend a week with these women like doing my research. And so I retain the information a lot better. But doing it one night, I was kind of like, I can't even remember the name of the lady I covered. But um, this is kind of appropriate for the time we're going through because I am covering a survivor. Woo-woo. So I am covering Violet Jessup. So when I covered Margaret Brown, a.k.a. the unsinkable Molly Brown in episode 40, if you haven't heard. Uh, so I thought she had survived multiple ship sinkings. I thought she'd been on the Titanic, the Lusitania, you know, like you name it, she was on it. Oh, I did too. But she wasn't. She was just on the Titanic. However, there is someone who did this, uh, who was on multiple ships that sank. And this is her story. So Violet Jessup. I think I think history maybe got the two ladies confused, basically. Yes. No. A- apparently, I've maybe heard of this lady and got her mixed up with the unsinkable Molly Brown. I don't know. But it's fucking nuts. So, Violet Jessup was born on October 2nd, 1887 in Bahia Blanca, Argentina. She was the oldest daughter of Irish immigrants. Uh, so, Violet, Violet was a survivor early on in her life of her nine fucking siblings because apparently her parents were really into polite conversations, too. Yeah. And chocolate. Uh, three died in infancy. As a child, Violet also contracted tuberculosis, which the doctors were 100% sure she was going to die from. However... She told tuberculosis to kiss her ass and recovered. And then she went and like kicked all her doctors in the shin because that's only as far as she could reach. So when Violet was 16 years old, her father died due to complications after a surgery. Fucking bummer. After his death, Violet and her family moved to England. And to help support the family, Violet's mother worked as a stewardess at sea, leaving Violet at home to care for her youngest sister and while she was also attending convent school. So she's another parochial school survivor. So she has survived two things. (laughs) Tuberculosis in convent school. So then when Violet's mother became ill, because goddamn she can't catch a break, Violet took over the role of working to support a family, becoming a stewardess. So to get the job, Violet actually had to dress down and give herself like a make under because she was too pretty or something. So in Sonia's case, her beauty was her weapon. In Violet's case, she was too hot for her own good. I don't know. Yeah, the whole too hot thing. It reminds me of when I was talking about like Dorothy Dix put a call out for nurses and uh, was it Vivian was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was too attractive. Like they were like, no, you're too pretty. You can recruit other nurses, but you can't be a nurse. 
we can't have all these seamen getting distracted by your completely covered body, can we? And we certainly can't expect them to control themselves, so you need to be fugly. (laughs) But anyway, it worked. She, like, downplayed her glam factor, and at 21, Violet started her first stewardess job with the Royal Mail Line on the Orinoco in 1908. And this is, like, the M-A-I-L, not boy line delivering letters yeah which is funny because i actually typed m-a-l-e and i'm just like correcting it in my head like i there's no way i could have meant the royal dude line (laughs) i don't know i like the royal dude line i'll sign up for that so i've titled all my sections as punny as i can so the first section is called an olympic feat Things went well on the Orinoco, and Violet earned valuable experience. After a few years, she got a job with the White Star Line, working on the RMS Olympic. See what I did there? (laughs) Nice pun. Yeah, that was a good pun. Uh, Which was the largest civilian liner at the time, and had been in service for 24 years, and was even active during World War II, earning the nickname Old Reliable because, of course... Never give ships a nickname. No. Never give ships a good nickname because they will do everything in their power to say you're wrong. Right. They're like, fuck you. I don't like this name. Yes. The impervious, the the not at the bottom of the ocean being eaten by crabs. <laughs> Growing with algae. It's a good nickname. <laughs> so, however, the, the Olympic was not immune to drama. On September 20th, 1911, while leaving leaving Southampton, the Olympic collided with British warship HMS Hawk. Thankfully, though, there were no fatalities and the Olympic was able to, like, limp back to port without sinking. And so then it went on to, like, serve in World War I and do all of its shit until 1935. But this was, like, the first uh, ship accident Violet survived. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it only gets worse. Every time it gets worse. Steep, steep curve. Yeah. This shit escalates. Next section. A Titanic failure. Oh, God. (laughs) Any guesses as to what I'm going to talk about? No idea. So maybe Violet took the bad luck on the Olympic as a sign that it was time for a change because the next year in 1912, she began working on the RMS Titanic at 24 years old. When the unsinkable ship struck an iceberg on April 12th on her maiden voyage, Violet was ordered up on deck. So the crew was having trouble communicating with the non-English speaking passengers. So they basically put Violet in charge of... Serving as an example to how they should behave and to help guide them through the ship sinking procedures or whatever. Right. Like, here's how you put on a life vest. Here's how you get in the boat. So she was basically helping give instructions like, don't panic. The ship's unsinkable. You totally won't die tonight. Listen to the band play. Quote, I was ordered up on deck. Calmly, passengers strolled about. I stood at the bulkhead with the other stewardesses, watching the women cling to their husbands before being put into the lifeboats with their children. Sometimes, after a ship's officer or... Or no, sorry. 
sometime after a ship's officer ordered us into the lifeboat, and this was lifeboat number 16, if anyone wants to super nerd out and check it, uh, first to show some women it was safe. So she was actually put in a lifeboat to prove to other people, the lifeboat's fine. Yeah, this whole thing here is not fine. The lifeboat is. And that was actually a common thing because everyone thought that the the Titanic was safer than the rickety lifeboats. So they're like, I don't want to get in that bullshit. I'd rather stay on the ship that's unsinkable, which is fucking horrifying. So as Violet was ordered into the lifeboat, she was handed a baby by one of the officers. Just, hey, can you hold this? Yeah, it might have been that it was taken away from like a single father, maybe like women and children first, like here. Well, just an officer handed her this baby. It wasn't even like the dad. So just she suddenly has this rando baby. I like to imagine he was like walking down the hallway and there's just like a baby sitting there and he's like, what the fuck, you guys? (laughs) What do I do with this? What do I do with this rando baby? So Violet and the other survivors watched as as the Titanic disappeared beneath the waves and spent the night floating on the freezing ocean. That would be so terrible. They were rescued the next morning by the RMS Carpathia. While on the Carpathia, a woman approached Violet and grabbed the baby she was caring for and walked away without saying a word. And we're all just going to really fucking hope that was the baby's mom and not some random lady who was like, I take this baby now. This is my baby now. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Yeah. No, definitely her story headcanon. That's the mom. Like, that's so horrifying. And as Violet, what do you do? Like, can I see some identification that you are this baby's relative? So we're all just going to really hope that that was the baby's mom. So now you think after surviving one of the greatest maritime disasters of all time, Violet would be turned off 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 of working on the ocean. Oh, fuck yeah. I would know the shit out of a working on the ocean. But not our girl Violet. She got money to make. She ain't going to slow down. So my next section is these things come in breeze. Now, the First World War was in full swing and the White Star Line was doing their part by converting some of their liners into hospital ships. The Britannic. Oh, Jesus. See what I did there? I did. That was that was really hard, but I made it work. Yeah, that was that was a little bit. So the Britannic sister ship. So this was the sister ship to the Olympic and the Titanic. Okay, so she's keeping it in the family. Like, guys, fuck. (laughs) Fucking get your shit together. So this ship was designed to be the safest of the three. Yeah, she... No, 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 no. Loyalty, bitches. Loyalty. (laughs) I am ride or die. Sail or die. And I've got... I've not died twice. Sail or die with the white star line. So this was designed to be the safest of the three, and the company had actually gone back and made a lot of adjustments to the ship after the Titanic disaster, because they were almost done building it, and they were like, oh, shit, maybe we should, like, rethink this. They're like, Let- let's let's change things. Yeah. Well, and this was the safest, because they had learned from the Titanic, so everything the Titanic didn't have, this one did. Like, and left lifeboats to, like, save everyone. But we're all going to find out that doesn't mean shit. (laughs) So, Violet began working on the Britannic as a stewardess for the British Red Cross. The ship's job was to transport the sick and wounded and made five successful voyages to and from the Middle East theater. 
So sea travel was extremely dangerous. There were enemy subs, sea mines, and then normal ocean bullshit to worry about. Like, the sea is already a nightmare. Oh, yeah. You know, Nessie. No, that's that's Loch Ness. The Kraken. Cthulhu's out there. Like... Davy Jones locker, you know. Don't do it, guys. Stay on land where it's safe. Quarantine ship. (laughs) I have to ask, though, like... What was that like? Were you just stuck in your room or could everyone still like party? Was it just like an extended cruise? I I don't think so. I don't know. It sounded pretty terrible. I think you're stuck in your room. So on November 12th, 1916, the Britannic departed from Southampton. Again with Southampton because that's where the Olympic was coming from. And this was her sixth voyage to the Mediterranean Sea. So the ship arrived in Naples to refuel but was kept at bay by a storm before making the return trip to Britain carrying... 1,066 people, 673 crew members, 315 Royal Army Medical Corps, 77 nurses, and the captain. Wow, that's a lot of people. It's a fuck ton of people. So at 8.12 a.m. on November 21st, which is my mom's birthday, what? I'm not going to say how many years apart because she would murder me. Oh, yeah, she would. 100%. Here's the thing. If I said it right now, you would see it on the video that I would just drop dead. Like, she brought me into this world. She sure as hell can telepathically take me out. So at 8.12 a.m. on November 21st, a massive explosion rocked the ship. We know now that the explosion was caused by a German sea mine. And that was actually a mystery for a long time. There was a... Uh, like 2016 expedition that finally put the pieces together. But if anyone has Disney Plus, there is this really great show under the Nat Geo section. Um, I can't remember the name, but it's about sunken shit. Oh, it's Beneath the Waves or something where basically they use like this cool CG to remove the water from these shipwrecks and like examine, oh, here's what this damage looks like. This is how we know this was a torpedo or a bomb or whatever. And it's absolutely fascinating. Highly recommend. Great quarantine binge session. Just let me tell you. Oh, I'm going to have to watch the shit out of that. So the explosion damaged the watertight bulkhead, causing the first four watertight compartments to quickly begin taking on water. So, like, you can't do a ton against a mine. Like, the ship can be as safe as it wants to be, but when you get blown up, there's only so much you can do. So the captain quickly sent out an SOS, which was received by multiple ships in the area, but the Britannic received no responses. This was because the ship's antennas were damaged so that they could send messages but not receive any. But, like, I'd rather be able to get the message out. Oh, no, I agree. Like, because at least if you get the message out, like, hopefully people will just show up anyways. But I guess they couldn't communicate back. So the hospital staff began preparing prepping the lifeboats to evacuate, but the captain wouldn't give the order to lower them just yet. He was trying to move the ship towards a nearby island to save it. So basically, it wouldn't sink deep into the ocean. It would, like, beach itself. However, the ship began to list, so it was, like, leaning to one side, and the crew took matters into their own hands. They're like, fuck the shit. We're getting off. I'm I'm not dealing with this crap. And they began lowering the lifeboats, one of which Violet was in. However, the way the ship was sinking caused the propellers to rise above the water and it sucked in two lifeboats full of passengers. Fucking horrifying. And this is one of the the lifeboats Violet was in. 
However, Violet was able to avoid being minced by the propeller by jumping out of the lifeboat. So she was she just like yeeted herself out. Yeah, like last minute. Yeah, fuck that shit. Yeah. So unfortunately, Violet did receive a traumatic head injury from jumping from the lifeboat. So because it's being lowered, it's about to be sucked into some propellers and she just like leaps out and she hits her head and she gets a traumatic head injury. Quote, I leapt into the water but was sucked under the ship's keel, which struck my head. I escaped, but years later when I went to the doctor because of a lot of headaches, he discovered I had once sustained a fracture of the skull. She broke her fucking skull and didn't know about it for years. And she's like, God, aspirin is just not cutting it for me. Man, these migraines suck. Yeah. She's super lucky. So uh, Violet was able to find her way onto another lifeboat and describe the Britannic sinking. Quote, the white pride of the ocean's medical world dipped her head a little and then a little lower and still lower. All the deck machinery fell into the sea like a child's toy. When she took a fearful plunge, her stern rearing hundreds of feet into the air until with a final roar, she disappeared into the depths. I didn't mention Violet's also a fucking poet and... uh yeah, she is. She's a fucking novelist. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's funny you say that. Or maybe not. I can't remember if she wrote a memoir. We'll get there. We'll get there. It'll be a surprise for both of us. I totally did this research. <laughs> so it took 57 minutes for the Britannic to sink, taking 30 people with her. Which is tragic, but considering there were a th- 1,066 people on that ship, that's not that bad. Like, especially compared to the Titanic, which happened just a few years before. Yeah, see, they learned. They got enough lifeboats. Aftermath. Again, you'd expect Violet to retire from the sea, but because Violet has made a career out of making death her bitch, she returned to working for the White Star Line and then later the Red Star Line after taking a brief hiatus because... of after the Britannic because, come on, she's fucking earned it. Because of her experiences, Violet earned the nickname Miss Unsinkable. During the rest of her career on the sea, Violet went on two cruises around the world. She married briefly and eventually retired in Great Ashfield in Suffolk. One stormy night, while Violet was enjoying her well-earned retirement, she received a phone call. It was a woman who asked Violet if she had saved a baby that fateful night that the Titanic sank. Violet said yes, to which the caller replied, I was that baby, before hanging up. Soup's dramatic. How would someone even find her? So when she told a friend about the call, the the friend was like, oh, it was probably some, like, village children being a bunch of assholes. And she replied that she had never told anyone that story before now. So there was no one else that would have known that she had rescued a baby on the Titanic, which is just spooky as hell. However, records show that the only baby on Lifeboat 16 was Asad Thomas, who was put in the care of a woman named Edwina Trout before being reunited with his mother. That being said, how reliable can all these records really be? Like, well, I mean, especially if some officer just handed her a baby, there's not going to be a record of that. Exactly. It's not like they wrote that shit down. And then a woman just took the baby from her at the end. So maybe that woman was like, I was on lifeboat number whatever, and this is my baby. And so her three head cannon, it was totally the baby she saved. 
So Violet died in 1971 of congestive heart failure at the ripe old age of 83, greeting death like an old friend. Legacy. Violet or characters inspired by her have been featured in many films and TV shows that relate to the Titanic sinking, including James Cameron's Titanic. And she's represented as a stewardess named Lucy, apparently, who's like demonstrating how to put life jackets on and shit. The main character in the 2000 TV movie Britannic is anxious about traveling on the Britannic due to surviving the Titanic disaster and is heavily based off of Violet. And finally, Violet is also featured as a character in the stage play Iceberg Right Ahead, which was staged in 2012 to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the Titanic sinking. So yeah, that is the incredible survivor story of Violet Jessup, Miss Unsinkable. So Kelly, what are you thankful for? Um, I'm thankful for you allowing me to fuck everything up and then fix it. But I'm also thankful for, yeah, the safety of my friends and family, hopefully the safety of our listeners and for you, because I love you. What are you thankful for, Emily? I am thankful that uh, with all this COVID-19 stuff going on, uh, I'm I'm still able to work. Uh, me and my family members are so far so safe, and I'm glad that we can keep doing the podcast remotely uh, cause I really like this needs to keep going. I need some more normalcy in my life. I'm constantly in this, like, am I freaking out too much or not freaking out enough? And I'm just trying to be smart and safe and do whatever the CDC is telling me to do. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of whining about herstory. Please like us on Facebook, whining about herstory, Instagram, W A H pod and Twitter, W A H underscore pod. And you can email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Send us your recommendations. Just shout us out. Tell us if you want to say their name. We would love to read them on air. And wherever you listen, please rate us five stars. We also have a Patreon where you can support us financially and keep the wine flowing. So thank you for joining us for another episode. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.